Welcome again, everyone, uh, in our webinar that we're going to talk about more about historical Jesus. So we are all aware that Christianity began here in the Middle East and from, from this land, from the Holy Land, Christianity launched the good news of Jesus to, to all the nations. So Christianity was not imported uh, from the West. Jesus, uh, the human being, he lived here in the Holy Land. So his culture is of our Middle Eastern culture. In fact, from our land here, Christianity was exported uh, to the West. So to recover our authentic Christian heritage, we must acknowledge and affirm the historical Jesus and his early followers in the proper context with their own customs. So as he spoke from our culture, excuse me, from this culture, and we, the people of the Holy Land here, are closer to his culture than others who are outside of it. So the truth is that, is that if you wish to know the true God of the whole world, you must look in the face of Jesus. He is God in a human form. Today, in our century, Jesus is naturally seen by Christians and by the church as the son of God and savior of the world. But it is hard to think of Jesus as a man, as a historical Jesus in our century today. Whereas in the first century, it was just the opposite. It was hard for his followers to think of Jesus as God, but it was easier for him because they lived with him to know him as, as human. So, so it was easy to understand the historical Jesus in the first century, not like today, we are far from that first century lifestyle. So Jesus spoke in terms that were easily comprehensive to his audience. And today, those details are not self-evident to those of us who live 2000 years uh, later. Ancient readers of the gospels understood these local references, but modern readers today, we usually do not understand it. So in the Middle East, we see Jesus in his real image. Not only we concentrate on his divinity, but on his humanity as well. Uh, we know Jesus was not baptized in the Mississippi River, nor tested in the Nevada desert. So don't forget that Jesus was from the Middle East. He was from here. So this was, <laughs> excuse me, the introduction. And now <clears throat> we try to understand more the Bible stories because we know that time has separated us uh, from Jesus by thousands of years. But understanding culture and heritage can reconnect us to him. And this disconnect is partly due to the lack of information we have about people's beliefs of Jesus' time compared to our current contemporary circumstances. 
So let's situate Jesus in his authentic historical and geographical context. The world was so much different in Jesus' time. There were also other languages and different cultures. So those who were listening to Jesus at that time certainly understood his words. Specific details would have been familiar to his audience that they can uh, understand him, that help to understand him. As much as such, the scriptures are replete with tangible and local details of daily life in the first century Holy Land. Place of names, occupations, dwellings, religious rituals, and all these daily practices, people would have understood. So therefore, it is essential to understand that the majority of the writers of the Bible lived here in the Middle, in the Holy Land, in the Middle East, seeped in the cultures of their times. Whereas Christians today, we look at the biblical text from a different view than the first century. We look at it from a Greco-Roman Western worldview that has dominated the church for many centuries. Now, this is good in some respect, but uh, we can only use the eyes that God have gave, gave us. And it is only, this is only one point of view, which is the standard point of view. Now we need to bring like the Western perspective and to learn the Middle Eastern point of view and having both systems will genuinely help us understand scripture. So these two viewpoints, Western and Middle Eastern can and should coexist together. In the Middle East here, history, religion, and culture are all interconnected. The West does not connect things this way or emphasize it. As a result, Westerners don't often read or see the whole map. So nowadays, in our high technological age, I'll give you an example, we can have both a Windows PC and a Mac computer. So having both can help us do a better job. So we need both views together, to bring them together. For example, Jesus is not the cool, blonde-haired, blue-eyed homeboy dude. In the Middle East, we see Jesus in his real image, focusing not only on his divinity, which is important, but also on his humanity as well. So the West, or the Greco-Roman, versus the East, the Aramaic and the Hebraic, have different ways of thinking. The Greek mind is analytical, linear, and abstract, but the Middle Eastern mind is more visual and focused on imagery. So in the Middle Eastern view, we see God as steadfast, strong, uh, stronghold, while in the West, like views of God like as omnipotent, as every being everywhere, almighty, that's right, but we see him like more in this imaginary way being like uh, our rock or our stronghold. So definitely Jesus is God, the Almighty, 
but in the Middle East, we look at him like more, more this way, more the historical way that we picture him like as our rock here in the Middle East. And rocks are very important, which are used mainly for building. And we, the Christians, are all called the living stones that are built upon Christ, the chief cornerstone. Also, when David prays in Psalms 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Probably he was looking at something strong, steadfast, and immovable, something like the rock of Masada, or in Aramaic, Metsuda means a stronghold, a fortress. So possibly that was what was David looking at when he wrote this psalm. And moreover, it is important to read the Bible in its original settings, both geographically and historically to understand the Bible theology. So the Bible, sorry, is not just the word of God. Rather, it is the word of God spoken through places and people in history. Those people and that history cannot be ignored in order to be able to understand uh, the Bible, the text. Now, for the culture of the storyteller, it is crucial. Our task includes like responsibility of trying to understand these metaphors and these stories about Jesus in the light of the culture of which he was a part of. So in the Middle East, as I said, both religion and culture are interconnected. And as the West does not emphasize on this, therefore, if you want to understand the text, you have to study the culture and the custom of that time and interpret that through the first century eyes. That is a correct biblical study. That is to look at the Bible, not only through the modern, our 21st century glasses, but as well through the first century lens so that we can see the picture more clearly. Now, there are always three critical lines of evidence to consider when trying to, to identify and understand the biblical stories. First, geography <coughs> that features the landscape that matches a lot of clues in the Bible. Then the history, which is also the archeology span and the tradition and the culture and the religion where early Christians believed where these events occurred. And through that geography and through that history and culture where these events occurred, we get to the theology. We can then understand how God works through his creation, through nature, and especially through us, his crown of his creation, we the humans. So when these three lines of evidence agree, we can be sure where the event happened in that place. This is the case for many of the events of Jesus' ministry in his land. 
This is a, a critical step to recover the voice of Jesus, hearing him in his own culture and in his own land. This is the only way to build a future based on this heritage. Once we've identified the right location, our task then becomes trying to understand the story that happened there and the metaphors that Jesus used. And we should ask ourselves, what did his words mean to those who shared their culture and language with him? The Bible is not simply <laughs> the word of God for Christians in an abstract sense. Instead, it is the word of God spoken through people in history. And those people and that history cannot be ignored. We must work to understand them today. Now, I always like use or call it the three L's, the three L's, uh, the land, which talks about the importance of geography. The second L is the language, which is the history and the culture. To be able to understand the literature, to be able to understand the Bible, to be able to understand the theology. So I'm gonna next talk about this, uh, the three L's, the land, the language, and the literature. As I said earlier, Christianity began here in this land. And from this <coughs> land, Christianity launched the good news of Jesus to all nations. Christianity was not imported from the West, uh, as I said earlier. Um, in fact, from our land here, Christianity was exported to, to the West from here. Everything started here. And our land, our language, our literature, Everything here speaks Christianity. Christianity was born and took shape in the Middle East. We must cherish this truth and convey it to our Christian friends uh, in the whole world. And we should also know that the Bible, <coughs> sorry, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a Hebrew book reflecting a Middle Eastern worldview. If we wish to look at any passage of scripture in context, the context must be the context of the Holy Land. The Middle Eastern perspective is a great way to begin studying and understanding uh, scripture. Now, as I said also, the standard point of view is good, but going back to the Aramaic and Hebraic way of thinking gives a deeper roots to our faith. So I'm teaching the Aramaic and Jewish roots for us to understand more the depths of scripture and to change more to be like him and, and understand his first century culture and way of life, which may help strengthen our faith and give us a victorious life today. The Bible is told in the land and all of its writers came out of this land. And as Christianity moved out of the land, it started lacking its original Aramaic and Jewish culture into, into going more into the Greco and Roman world. So an important point to make here is that the land and the Bible like go together. 
Now the language is so important as well because it reflects the culture and the history of that period. Like meaning is often lost in translation, especially uh, translating the Bible, translating the language. And when you translate the Bible from its original language into another, you lose much, much of that meaning. And since a lot of meaning is lost in translation, it is important to explain some of the key terms and concepts from their original language, because language is a rich way to develop and enrich our understanding of Jesus and his, and his message. As many things are lost in translation, yet still in our Eastern language, the original meaning is preserved in both the Aramaic and Hebraic because both Aramaic and Hebraic have same root let, same roots, they are the same Semitic languages. And, and we preserve uh, these original words uh, are preserved. So again, as Christianity started here, the common language or the lingua franca at that time was Aramaic. Jesus did not speak English, right? The common languages of the land in the first century were Aramaic, Greek, uh, and Hebrew. So Jesus spoke all three. Yes, he lived in a land ruled by the Roman Empire, but he thought, lived, and died as a Middle Eastern. For example, I want to give you an example. Take the Hebrew roots of Jesus' name. Like in Greek, uh, we call it Isus. In, in English, we call it Jesus. It comes from Greek, Jesus. But originally, originally in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is a shorter form of Yehoshua, which is equivalent uh, of the word in Hebrew, Joshua. So it was a very common Jewish male name, meaning the Lord is our salvation. Yeshua, God will save, all right? So this is just, just one example of the name of Jesus. So originally in Jewish language, we can understand its meaning, which means God will save. Yehoshua, God will save. Now, our culture today is not, I know as the culture of the people in the Bible, Jesus the man, we have to know, all right, was not from outer place. Like, <laughs> uh, he was not stranger uh, to his word at that time. He was one, one of the people. So, <laughs> although the geographic center of Christianity may have shifted to the West from its original, Jesus still came from, from here, from the, from the Holy Land, from the Middle East. So, he spoke these Semitic languages. Uh, Likewise, we the Christians in the Middle East, like originally we spoke that language, Aramaic, just like Jesus. So to penetrate more deeply into the words of the teacher Jesus, we need to look at the text. We need to look at the language from an Aramaic and Hebraic point of view, from that different angle. So, for example, you look at an event, but from an opposite side, from, from a reversed angle. 
And looking at that event from this reversed angle, let's say from the Aramaic and heroic point of view, it's going to enrich your understanding of, uh, of the Bible. Now, our understanding today is so much disconnected from time, space, and how people thought in, in the first century. This is why we must work to understand the Bible in its historical and cultural context, in its language, original language. So this heritage, uh, rich heritage and culture of the Middle East is very important. And this Aramaic and Hebraic point of view is the beginning of studying scripture. So we need to have these insights to be able to see the text through the Middle Eastern eyes. And now to come to, lit to literature is another foundational point. Because uh, the Bible is not just a book of geography and history. It also records divine intervention in space and time in real places where often we can work out where these places are that can reveal uh, this theology. Uh, can, this like uh, can reveal the literature, can reveal the Bible, can reveal the texts. And thus we can know Jesus as the Messiah and as the savior of the world. The single most important Jewish person in the country here, of course, was Jesus. And he was addressing issues of his time and he was trying to communicate to be, to be understood. <laughs> so if we ignore this reality, we're gonna lose this perspective. And we can run to the danger of the literature in the text as just becoming a mere image of ourselves and our concerns uh, in our own culture and background today. But if we stop and ask the question, what did Jesus mean with the text? Or the first hearers of this, those parables, how they would have understood the text in the course of their time, then this is super important to understand uh, the correct literature of the second temple period to learn how we can hear his voice through the text today, okay? Reading the gospels against this background is important. Trying to understand the text within its context sheds more light on the literature, sheds more light on Jesus. Because Jesus always quoted from scriptures. He always says, you have heard, but I tell you. We can see how Jesus had the authority from the Father. <laughs> he is not quoting from other rabbis or teachers. He is teaching directly from his Father. And thus has this authority that leads to the supernatural intervention of his presence uh, in the life of his disciples and in our lives today that, that changes. So if we get to understand that literature is gonna make us more, more obedient, more humble, and even can change our lives. We can see God's supernatural intervention in our lives when we can understand 
see the text more clear, all right? So understanding uh, Jesus in his first century helps us, <laughs> the 21st century disciples of Jesus, even to live a victorious Christian life. Because this is when we see God's supernatural work in us. And to get to that, we have to understand, like when we get to know, to know the history, when we get to know uh, the geography, when we get to know the land, uh, when we get to know historical Jesus, we can get to know the spiritual Jesus. So these three, like the three L's that I talked about, uh, help us understand more historical Jesus so that we can understand spiritual Jesus better. So, of course, we look to understand the physical first because that can connect us to the spiritual and that can reveal God's plan for us today. God entered our world so we can also enter his world. Now, I'd like to shift from us abstractly discussing these things and give you a practical example that illustrates uh, understanding the, the land, understanding the language that can lead us to new biblical insights in the literature, thus understanding the Bible, and that can make uh, us part uh, of that uh, let's say, uh, supernatural life. So if we get the natural, so we can get the supernatural. We can get that heavenly life when, when the, the text is revealed to us. When... So I'm gonna talk about uh, like the mystery of the incarnation. Um, in the picture here, you can see the main facade of the Annunciation Church in Nazareth. We see the angel here coming to Mary. And uh, you see how her hands are on her belly. I don't know if you can see that she is ready to accept the angel's message. So as God is using her to connect heaven with earth, because uh, the Lord, like, um, became flesh and dwelt among us, entered our world. And even here you can see like um, the fish in the sea, uh, the birds uh, and the trees. So God, we can see how he's using like, again, the simple, like uh, the unimportant, uh, like Mary, uh, to make uh, like uh, important, to make, uh, the supernatural or using the natural to make the supernatural. So I know the mystery of incarnation is far more than our minds uh, can grasp, right? And uh, like I picture it like a baby who's like playing on a shoreline on, on an ocean with the sand and he's making a hole and he's trying to put all the water of the ocean in that hole on the beach. Now, I know this is impossible. Uh, and again, I know like our brain cannot, uh, like our hard disk cannot download 
what God has done. Our brains cannot grasp uh, what God has done for us, but nevertheless, like this little water is still has the same characteristics of the water from the, from the ocean. I know we cannot feel the ocean in the, inside that hole, uh, which is our brain, but uh, God to become one of us, uh, he like helped us to understand some of his uh, super nature. Uh, so that I picture that hole as our minds have a little bit of, of the ocean, has a little bit of God, God uh, uh, revealing himself to us. So, we're gonna see what were like the historical and the geographical context in which like Jesus lived. So we we will learn how he became part of our world. Uh, we're gonna emphasize on Jesus' humanity. For example, if his nails grow, you know he was human. You know he have to cut them. So imagine what a culture shock as well. Uh, God had to pass through from a heavenly supernatural culture coming to an earthly natural culture. So I'm going to give you in this example uh, keys, but you have to play with these keys yourselves so that doors will be open for you. I'm going <laughs> to start with the geography again, as we learned how geography shapes history and history makes theology, as theology is always related again to the physical environment. Uh, we like God reached us so we can reach him, all right? So through historical Jesus, we can know, uh, know uh, God. Now, God does not work through vacuum. So he always works through his creation. Through nature and especially humans, because we are created in his image, we are the crown of his creation. And he became part of that creation to be able we can to reach us and we can reach him. Now, this is the, the uniqueness of Christianity that all other religions where everybody is trying to reach God, but in Christianity it is just the opposite. God is trying to reach us first so that we can reach him. So Bethlehem, Bethlehem, where the birth happened, is a, in a unique location, is located in the center of the Judean mountains. So it means it's very near, very near between the farmland and the wilderness. So just providing uh, some like uh, access for sheep and shepherds and flocks uh, to have something to eat. And uh, this is the picture of, of modern Bethlehem. And I want you to notice how it's built over a mountain ridge. All right. Uh, that is important. That is important. Because uh, in the first century, it was a very small village on a mountain ridge. Now, also, also God, as I said, uses nature. If we consider astronomy uh, for at the birth of Christ, there was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn 
two big planets. Uh, and these two planets have been like huge in the sky. They're looking massive. And perhaps one of these two heavenly <laughs> bodies was the same one that the Magi witnessed and, and they followed. And now in the first century, the Bethlehem region, we know was occupied by the Roman empire. Luke, the gospel writer recounts the historical circumstances of Jesus birth. At the time of Jesus birth, the Roman empire was ruled by Caesar Augustus. He was in power from year almost 30 BCE till 14 AD. The governor of Syria at that time was Cornelius <laughs> who was in charge. And the gospel of Luke says that the taxation happened under Cornelius. So the empire mandated that everyone to return to their city of origin, as we know, for the counting. And this meant that security is in the lead up to and during the count would be heightened. Roman soldiers would have been everywhere and that meant an inevitable and dangerous journey to the city of origin. However, what is also clear in scripture that Joseph had to leave Nazareth and return to Bethlehem for the census, his village of his origin. That was almost a 75 miles journey to pay the Roman taxes to be registered. And what is also clear is that we can see how God is controlling history. Uh, when Caesar Augustus ordered the census, Joseph had to go to the city where the prophets had prophesied the birth of the Messiah. As it's written in Micah uh, 5.2, but you Bethlehem of Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So the census that forced Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem was <laughs> for the purpose of taxation, not conscription, as the Jews did not serve uh, in the army. So at that time, you have to know there was a lot of tension in Judea, as well as in Galilee against the Roman occupation. Just to give you an example in history, in the first half of the first century, before Christ, the Jews revolted five times against the Romans. Four of these five revolts happened because the Romans were contemplating a census that would mean more taxes for the people of Judea and the Galilee. So to illustrate the perilous circumstances, in 6 AD, the sons of Judas of Gamla, okay, who was a, a, a radical anti-Roman zealot, who led, led a revolt, the Romans crucified about 2,000 people in a single day in Jerusalem as a result of that uprising. And Luke, the author, also wanted to construct the rebellious zealots with the peaceful Joseph and Mary who had obeyed the Roman edict. And to find also a prophetic fulfillment as well, it's written in Psalms 87, verse 6, the Lord will write in the register of the peoples. This one was born in Zion. And also in archaeology, in archaeology, <laughs> there's an inscription 
that has been found in Beirut in Lebanon that references to an earlier and lesser known census conducted by Emilio Secundus, which occurred sometime between 10 and 8 BCE. It is known as the Emilio Secundus inscription. Now, why this is important? Because notice the use of the word first when we read in Luke 2, verse 2. The census first took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria. So it may be that Luke is referring to this earlier census that occurred somewhere around 10 BCE. So there is an evidence of that earlier small census that took place by this inscription that was found in Lebanon, in Beirut. Now, as they arrived to, to Bethlehem, we have to know now more the culture, right? Joseph and Mary were of the house and lineage of David. Like we read in Matthew, Joseph, son of Haley, son of Matat, and the son of Levi, he was of royal blood, a direct descendant of King David. The family of David was famous in Bethlehem. Being from that famous family, Joseph definitely would have been welcomed anywhere in the town, especially also as Mary was about to give birth. In the first century culture, or in our culture even until today, any woman about to give birth is given very special attention. So our communities would always assist one like of their own in childbirth. Mary as well comes originally from, from Judah. Now, regardless of her circumstances, so Joseph was returning to his home village where he believed he could easily find shelter. Now, definitely if Joseph comes to, to Bethlehem and he does not go to his family, this is dishonor for the family. So could think about this. Could a small Jewish town fail to help a young Jewish mother about to give birth? No way. They would help without a question. Now, according to, to Roman law, only the man is responsible for paying the taxes. There was no reason for a pregnant woman to go, especially if she was going to give birth at any moment. So the journey would have taken at least a week, which would have been difficult for a woman about to give birth. So how would you like to be pregnant Mary traveling from Galilee through Jerusalem that day? No, thanks. Like, given the circumstances of her pregnancy, Mary likely had no desire to remain in Nazareth. Being unmarried, her pregnancy brought dishonor and shame to her family and community. So no way, she would tell Joseph, wherever you go, I'm gonna go with you. Please don't leave me here. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, we read also the phrase, Jesus, the son of Mary, like in Mark uh, chapter six, verse three. But in Aramaic and Hebrew, in, that, in our culture and in the first century culture, you never say someone was the son of their mother. But my name is Tony because my grandfather name is Tony. 
all right? My dad is Joseph, so I named my son Joseph. So the father's name is always used, unless, of course, there were doubts about who the father really was. Is it possible that specula speculation about the origins of Jesus' per birth persisted throughout his lifetime? We will never know for sure. Definitely, like being 12 years old, going out to play with our kids, they're going to steal his kippah and make fun of him. We don't know who is your dad is. You are the mother of Mary. Just I'm trying to bring more historical Jesus alive to you. But we know that Mary chose to take the journey with Joseph. No matter how difficult it was. Now, simple village homes in the first century often have an open courtyard. It's used to have the household work and made of two rooms, like this open courtyard, and with one room for the guests over, over the mountain ridge, over a cave, which is like a lower room. Uh, like a basement today where food is stored and where the family cow or donkey, uh, a few sheep or um, some chicken as well would be driven into that cave at night. So the family would keep the animals inside to provide heat in winter and were kept them safe from theft before like electricity and, and also to keep, uh, to keep them safe from other animals as well, wild, more wild animals at that time. So these house animals would be taken out and tied up in the courtyard the, the following morning. Now in Bethlehem area, believe it or not, such homes uh, exist until today. This like traditional lifestyle fits naturally into the birth story of Jesus. And this is how we, the Christians of the land, understand, understand that text. I've been like to some Christian houses in Bethlehem where they live on the second floor and the first floor, that's where they keep their animals. Um, using it as a basement. I couldn't stand the smell, but until today, this is real. Uh, they have the sheep uh, in the basement of the house, in the first floor, they grow some apricots, uh, some lemons, and they live on the second floor. So this is until today real. So like we know in the Middle East, <coughs> we have this tradition and so that Jesus' birth would have taken place in a cave. Because uh, like uh, in the West, you would never think that Jesus was born in a cave. Actually, when you visit uh, the Nativity Church, you literally go to the deepest part of a cave. So it's a very strong tradition Jesus was born in a cave. And you know you're familiar <laughs> that newborn human babies are among the weakest. So many newborn animals, <coughs> sorry, can stand within minutes of birth. 
but not us as humans. We require our parents to take care of us. God showed us his practical love when he became as feeble as a human baby to give us his Holy Spirit. This is what makes us different than all the rest of his creation. And at the time of Jesus' birth, almost all mangers were in caves, right? It was one of the best places to be born. Joseph and Mary put the baby in a manger. And Luke also mentions that the child was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, after the child was born and wrapped in clothes, which were like long strips of clothes that protected the child from, from the cold and gave him a feeling of protection. So Mary then put her newborn to bed in a manger filled with fresh straw and covered with a blanket. As the gospels say, the baby was laid in a manger. This is a correct translation. But what is implied by a manger? In many countries, the nativity manger is sort of a wooden cradle stuffed with straw in which the baby Jesus was placed. Mangers were feeding and watering troughs, usually carved out of stone, like the one you see here in the picture. They would be found wherever animals were kept and fed. Their size and shape would be a perfect resting place of a newborn infant. And the writer Isaiah, in chapter one, verse three, knew, knew that animals have habits. If you feed an animal from a certain manger, he'll always come back to eat from that manger. So it's a symbol of obedience the moment the Lord was born. And this is what it says in Isaiah, chapter one, verse three, the ox knows his, its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Now, the Bible says that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. That makes it sound like Mary and Joseph had been rejected by the people of Bethlehem. Was that really the case? The answer is definitely no. No room in the inn is a first century means in guest chamber. Now, inn is an English translation. Like we read from Luke chapter two, verse seven, there was no room in the inn <laughs> since many people had come to town for the census. Now the Greek word kataluma is translated as inn. That does not mean that. Kataluma means a guest chamber. A first century chamber was always located in someone's house. This is where guests would eat and sleep in the house. In other words, Mary and Joseph found no place in their relatives' guest chambers. Like if I want to go more in, in the Pshita translation, in the Aramaic direct and simple translation, it says there was not a place for them where they were lodging, all right? There were no ends at that time. This is a very poor uh, translation where you lose the, the original meaning. The original Pshita says, the, the original Aramaic says, there was not a place for them where they were lodging. 
And also, if we go back to the first century, <coughs> a historian, Justin Martyr, his, his local, uh, he writes in the middle of the second century, and he is the first person to mention that Jesus was born in a cave. So this is a very strong tradition that Jesus was born in a cave. To summarize, to summarize, I'm almost finished. There's, there's one more. Uh, I like to talk about the church of nativity, but to summarize, a part of what Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus is that the Holy Family traveled to Bethlehem. They were received into a private family home, but there was no room in their family guest chamber. So they went to their house cave where the animals were typically kept. It would naturally be warm and private. And after sending the men away, the village midwife and other women would have assisted at the birth at the deepest part of the cave for privacy of the birth. No way, no way the Holy Family would be rejected. Mary would have only been left alone with the care of the village's women around her. Now, this is the place where is built that commemorates uh, Jesus' birth, where Jesus was born, and <laughs> one particular cave actually, over which the church was built is believed to be the birthplace. And it's marked by like these 14 pointed silver stars, as you can see here. But it's a very unique entrance to the, to the church uh, that remembers where Jesus was born, where Christianity started, where God entered our history in an amazing new way. And this is our face and this is our joy after all, like this is the origins of Christmas. You can see here uh, people celebrating uh, Christmas in, uh, in the church of the nativity, in the Catholic church of the nativity. So I hope like now uh, challenge your minds and uh, help you more understand the text and especially the birth story so we can make hopefully more room for the Lord uh, in our lives and I want to encourage you like in our time to take some of uh, like time to look at our lives again and allow God the God of love to enter with his gifts into our like busy busy lives uh, we must never forget this moment of incarnation. And to think of, like, I hopefully, like, more doors will be revealed and to have, like, more room for the Lord to consider more ways in our lives to share, to share this love that God gave us uh, so we can find more life as we, we make more way towards him. So this is what I like to share with you.